I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, It's All About Carbon, Building a Thriving Soil Biological Community, is brought to you by Calmer Cornheads. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Calmer Cornheads for sponsoring today's episode. Calmer Cornheads is home to the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the No-Till Product of the Year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer Cornheads is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit CalmerCornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Well-functioning soils are teeming with diverse organisms dependent on carbon as an energy source. But typical crop production practices like tillage and seasonal fallow reduce soil organic carbon over time and limit benefits that come from a robust soil biological community, says Dennis Chessman. The team leader for the NRCS Soil Health Division in Lexington, Kentucky will discuss the diversity of organisms present in healthy soils and how a healthy soil ecosystem contributes to important soil functions like water infiltration and nutrient cycling. Chessman will also outline management practices that minimize direct disturbance of soil communities and contribute to building soil organic carbon and helping no-tillers farm more profitably. While enjoying this program, I encourage you to download a PDF of Dennis's presentation provided on the No-Till Farmer website landing page for this podcast so you can follow along and learn more about promoting healthy no-tilled soils. When we consider soil degradation, some of it's really obvious. We can even map it like a lot of people have, have done. And, and typically when we're talking about soil degradation, it's, it's erosion, it's, it's loss of that surface layer. But now, you know, we're, we're talking more about loss of soil organic carbon and, and soil organic matter as, as a form of degradation. And so what we're going to look at briefly is degradation that's harder to see. It's, it's not obvious always when you're standing in a field or looking at a field, although you can, there are things to look for, but it's, it's the degradation that occurs underground. The topic that I've been charged with, carbon and soil biology, I was just curious how much has been published recently, so I went out and I just made copies of all this book. So I would refer you, if you're really, really interested, there's a lot of information out there that you can pursue further. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that you know a lot of our conferences have sessions like this, soil biology, the soil environment. I think in years to come, what we're going to see is much more focused sessions where we're gonna talk about specifically the role of soil fungi in nutrient cycling, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna zoom in on, on very specific topics of biology because there's a lot going on and we're learning a lot all the time about the functions and the importance of biology for our agricultural systems. So what I wanna do is I just wanna introduce the actors that I'm gonna focus on. And the actors that I'm gonna focus on are the lowest form of life. 
because as I want to try to start showing you is these are the ones that really drive what's happening in the soil and the benefits that we derive from soil biological communities. They're the bacteria primarily and, and, and to a degree the fungi. But the bacteria and the things that we can't see, and they are the lowest form of life, but there are so many of them, and, and by virtue of numbers and mass, they have an incredible impact on our world. And not only are they the low life form, but they respond to their environment. It's okay to laugh, okay? It's all right. And, and, and apparently, you know, just like a lot of us, they have, it doesn't matter how small you are, you're prone to relationship problems. But they're responding to the environment, and it's largely the environment we create by our management practices. So if you get nothing else from, from our time together, I want you to, to think about how you can manage if you're not, or how you can manage more with an eye toward soil biological function, the soil community, the organisms in the soil, and how everything you do in your practices from planting to planting to harvesting, all those things, how they would influence the soil community. And you got a lot of decisions to make. What I want to, to send you home with is thinking about that portion of the soil that we don't perhaps always think about. We're aware of the diversity in soils. We've got everything from from the, 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 the very small to the very large, the things that we can see. And you've seen pyramids like this, where foundationally we're, we're down here at the, at the microscopic level, and as we move up, we have fewer organisms, and they're larger, and these are the things we see in the earthworms and, and those cuddly critters that we like, and everybody loves earthworms, and they're, they're very important in, in soil function. But again, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna spend time talking about earthworms, but we're becoming more and more aware of just how diverse and complex the interactions in these systems are, how sensitive they are to management, how they respond to their environment, how they respond to management changes. So those are important for our consideration. If we look at numbers of organisms, you can see that the microscopic ones, the ones on the top, incredible numbers. We can identify less than 1% of the microbes in the soil. We really don't know what they are. I, I mean, we see the results of their function, but we're not to the point where we can draw a line between many of the microbes and this outcome, or this group of microbes and this benefit that we see in our systems. So they're incredibly complex, and, and the biomass is astounding. And 90% of this 10,000 to 30,000 pounds of biomass, and that's primarily in the surface layers of soils, 90% of that in functioning agricultural soils will be the microorganisms. So only 10% of the biomass will be the things that we see, the larger things. So just by virtue of numbers and mass, the microorganisms are driving the system. They're, they're, they're the ones that have the greatest effect on the outcomes. We're going to talk about carbon. You've, carbon is it. Carbon's important. And, and when we're talking carbon, we're talking about organic carbon. We're talking about carbon that's in the form of carbohydrates and sugars, uh, glucose, those kinds of things. We're not talking about carbon that's, that's in carbonates, like if you farm in areas with a lot of limestone, there will be carbonates, uh, calcium carbonates in your soil. Not that form of carbon. We're talking about the biological form of carbon. So if we have, for example, in my slide here, what we have is we have two carbon to nitrogen ratio plant materials that are added to soil. 
This one is, is, is about 60, so here think corn stover. This one about 20, so think of maybe early bloom crimson clover. Different carbon to nitrogen ratio. So this one has 20 times more carbon than nitrogen. This one 60 times more carbon than nitrogen. Biologically, carbon and nitrogen in, 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 in the world are linked together. And they're, and they're linked together and they have important interactions in, in our systems and our plants. So what happens when we add this high carbon material here in this case is we get this flush of CO2 and we can measure this. We can put sensors on the surface of the soil and we can catch CO2 that's coming out of the ground. Same here, we get this flush of CO2. But notice what happens to nitrogen. And here is why we know this, that if we have a high carbon to nitrogen residue, and this could be corn stover, as I said, or it could be uh, rye that's killed at O or boot or somewhere around there, we get a depression in nitrogen. And the reason is, is, that, is that we're causing an explosion of the population of bacteria primarily. And bacteria not, not only consume carbon and give off CO2, but they also consume nitrogen and incorporate nitrogen into their bodies. So we get this depression in available nitrogen. That would be ammonium and nitrate. So it's tied up in, and it's only after time that as they die, that nitrogen becomes available. So when we have a lower uh, carbon and nitrogen material, we get less depression. We get much more nitrogen that's readily available. But the, the main point I want to drive home here is that microbes consume the carbon that's added to the system in the organic form. And we're talking about things that are derived from plants. And when they do that, and we know that they do that because they're eating carbon and they're breathing out, if you will, CO2. They're, they're breathing out CO2 and we can measure that. So this carbon is being consumed, it's critical for their and, and, and it, it results in population explosions, if you will, of microorganisms. So how does carbon get into our soil systems? There's really a, only one way, and it starts with photosynthesis. There's upwards of 400 parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere out there. There's probably more, maybe like 600 parts per million in this room this morning. But in, outside, there's 400 some parts per million. But that CO2, that carbon in carbon dioxide is not available to creatures like you and me. It has to be fixed. And the way that in our world that happens is through photosynthesis. Green plants, through photosynthesis, take carbon dioxide out of the air and then this amazing, this amazing process, combine it with water from the ground, energy from sunlight, and they make this wide range of sugars, carbohydrates, energy-rich products. Now, why do the plants do that? Well, they do that for themselves. They do that to grow. They do that to create roots, shoots, flowers, seeds, reproduce. But it's also critical for us because that's the only way that energy enters our world. Whether I, you and I are eating that potato or that loaf of bread or that steer that uh, was fed either grass or grain, that all started as carbon that was fixed in a plant and the energy was passed through the system. So we'll talk about how carbon moves through soil systems, but soil systems are not unique. Carbon moves through all living systems. It moves through our system. We could not exist without carbon fixed by plants in the form of the energy-deriving products that start as carbohydrates and sugar. And so when carbon is fixed in plants, essentially most of it 
contacts the soil through exudates of roots, through dead roots, through dead leaves, and some of it ends up in the living component, some of it ends up in the not-so-living component of organic matter. And so when we talk soil organic matter, I'm going to talk a lot about soil carbon from this point. Just know that soil organic matter is about 50 to 60% carbon. It depends on your soil, but it, it, sometimes it's easier just to think soil organic matter is half carbon. It's primarily carbon and a lot of other things as well. So where does the carbon go? Where does the soil organic matter go? Just conceptually, very broadly speaking, there are different ideas of what happens to carbon, and it's extremely complex, still not well understood, although we've known about it for uh, over a century now, still not well understood. But, but as we said, CO2 enters our world through plants, and even if that's organic inputs, and when I think organic inputs, I'm thinking manures, or composts, or biosolids, anything that has a lot of carbon in it, and that, all that stuff, if you think back far enough, it started as a plant somewhere, and you can trace it through, and it's a plant byproduct. So when that carbon contacts the soil, again, conceptually thinking so that we can get our heads around this, we recognize it going into one of three reservoirs or pools. And we've named these three differently based upon how long they typically reside in the soil without turning back into CO2. This blue arrow going back to the sky is important because Carbon is always moving through the soils, always. There, there's, there's never a time when, when CO2 is not leaving our soils at some amount and going back into the atmosphere. And you can see the residence time. This, this one down here, this passive one, there's a lot of discussion among people interested in carbon scientists. Is if this really exists, because we've never really seen this. We've, we've never been able to go into soil and identify this, this 100 to 1,000 year old stuff. I mean, we, and I'll show you kind of where that thinking comes from, why we assume that it's there. But again, that's being challenged by some organic soils people. So what happens to the carbon that's added to our system, either directly through plants or through, through organic input? So this is, this is kind of the breakdown. And so what you can see is that as, as much as half or more is quickly returned as carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So only a part of what we're adding actually ends up in the soil and it gets distributed into these, into these pools and there's interchange between these pools. Organisms are involved. They make more complex molecules. The soil's involved. Uh, some of this carbon gets trapped in soil structures and soil chemistry. And, and, and this is part of what that passive, passive pool down, down there is. So we, can, so we can look at, here, here's some long-term numbers for what happens to soil carbon when we do uh, annual crops. So two different locations, one in Illinois, one in Missouri, uh, different, different managements. These three are, are the Illinois ones, these four are the Missouri ones. But you can see, here, here's over 100 years of data, what happens to organic carbon. We know this, just by the way that we're, we farm, we decrease soil organic carbon. That has to do with a couple things, with tillage, disruption, which we know releases carbon, and the way that we crop. There was no cover crops in these systems, so there was seasonal fallow where there was nothing growing. So based upon what we already said, what, what, what's continually happening to carbon in the soil? It's going back to the atmosphere, right? So what happens if we don't regularly replace it? 
we start running into deficits. So what we can do is, is, is based upon those curves that we have for over 100 years where we've looked at soil organic carbon, we can draw our lines. So you can see why I say it's conceptual. Based upon what we know happens, has, has been shown regardless of where you are in the world, this, what hap this, what's, this is what happens with cultivation. We have our active pool and we can figure that mathematically. We have our slow pool and we have our, our passive pool. So what are some assumptions we can make from that? Some conclusions we can draw from that? We know that natural and potential soil organic carbon levels are site specific. It depends on where you are in the world, your soil, your climate primarily. Annual cropping, conventional cropping tends to decrease carbon and management is important. There were different management systems there. Some included additions of manure, some were more complex. Some had a period of perennial hay crop in there. Those will all tend to slow the decrease in carbon, but nonetheless, carbon will decrease. And the carbon, this is important for us, the carbon pool that is most utilized by the soil community is the one that depletes the fastest. That's the very active pool. That's the one that's available most to the organisms to drive the system. So we can think of it as a balance. It's, it's an in and out. It's, a, it's an economic problem. It's an input-outputs. It's a deficit and income kind of thing. So all of our ways of in, inserting carbon from plant litter, plant residue, animal waste, and then the things that come from the roots are the inputs. And then we have all of these things. So the question becomes, what can we manage here? What can we manage? Because we want to reduce the amount of carbon loss for our systems. We want to maximize this. We can manage a lot of this, right? and that's what we're talking about. One of the great reasons to grow covers is to store more carbon in the soil. But then we can also manage this. There will be some of this, and it's a very large arrow where carbon is returning to carbon dioxide. But this we can manage, absolutely. This, some goes away in our harvestable product. And in this, we're going to lose some of this. So primarily, we can manage here on the input side by how much carbon we're injecting into the soil and over here to some degree. So looking at it theoretically, here's a theoretic thing what happens when, when we start plowing. So we, we start plowing at this point, 40 years later, we have about half of the soil organic carbon that we started with. This would be typical for any cultivated soil. So how can we change that? So if we went to no-till alone, the assumption of this author is that nothing would change. We would stay there. If we plow tilled and we remove residue we didn't cover, we could drive this line further. We could lose carbon. But there are things we can do, and based upon the intensity, we can start restoring carbon. And this, this one up here, intensification, that would be things like, well, we're growing a lot of covers. We're growing complex covers. We're, 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 we're producing 10,000 pounds of cover crop biomass. We're retu returning crop residue. We're not tilling. We're adding manures or biosolids. So uh, we can drive that up pretty quickly. But notice that the line is not as steep as, as the line of decline. So once we lose it, it's harder to recover it. So our natural systems are different than most agricultural systems. You know this. And why do we change them? Well, we change them because this system over here, whatever it is, doesn't grow the kinds nor amounts of things that we want. Would you agree with that? Our prairies, our forest systems, they don't grow the kinds and amounts of things that we need. And so we modify them to this. But that comes at a cost, okay? That comes at a cost. 
So when we compare our natural system that was on the landscape of your farm compared to your farm, this is some assumptions that we know are, are pretty accurate. That agricultural system has less carbon stored as organic matter than the natural system has more than the ag system. There's decreased hydrologic function. And what I mean by that, less water gets in, less water is stored, more runs off. And that's related to carbon stored as organic matter. Inadequate nutrient cycling in the natural systems compared to the native system. Less vigorous and more pest susceptible plants in our natural systems, in our, in our ag systems compared to the natural systems. And then the bottom line is we have lower stress tolerance, less resistance, less resilience in those systems. So what I want to focus on is how microbes are involved in restoring some of these functions. And that's where we'll go. So we can say, in summary, suppressed biological community structure and function from management directly contributes to decreases in soil function. So those functions related to water, related to nutrients, related to pest suppression are all biological, is what I'm saying. They're all biological. We'll rejoin my conversation with Dennis Chessman in a moment, but I wanted to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Calmer Cornheads is home of the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads in residue management upgrade kits. They're patented BT chopper stalk rolls, cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the No-Till Product of the Year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialists, Calmer is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit CalmerCornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dennis as he discusses the role carbon plays in promoting proper pore spaces in soils and enhancing soil aggregation and water infiltration. We'll also review carbon's role in increasing aggregate stability of soils and the role active and functioning organisms in the soil play in allowing larger soil aggregates to form. So where do organisms live? They live in various places. They live in the residue, they live on aggregates, in aggregates, they live in pore spaces, they live in channels. Where do they live? Well, they live in spaces, essentially. Wherever there's a space, and that makes sense, something that no matter how small it is, even a bacteria, has to have enough space for a bacteria to live. So spaces become important. Space is critical, and so we need to maintain space for our organisms. It's been referred to the, the pore spaces in our soil, the respiratory and circulatory system of the soil, because it, it contributes to airflow which is important for organisms because these are aerobic, they're, they're air oxygen-eating organisms. And it, it, it contributes to water flow, water storage, and in, in conjunction with that, movement of nutrients in that water that moves. And biological homes and highways for our community that's giving us all of the, these, these functions that are important that we lost when converting from natural systems. So, soil microbes contribute to improve hydro hydrologic function. Remember that I said that was one of the things that we lost in our conversion of prairies and forests and, and savannas to cropland. So here are some data from the southeast that show that there is a direct relationship between 
soil bulk density, and you know bulk density is just a, it's, it's weight per volume. So they'll take a small piece of soil, they know the volume, they'll dry it, they weigh it. It's weight per volume. So the higher the number, the denser the soil, the less pore space. The lower the number, the more pore space. And so here we have bulk density, down here is, low, down here is lower, here's higher, here's organic carbon. So as organic carbon increases, there's more pore space, is the point of these data, taking from many, many soils across the southeastern U.S. Carbon influences aggregation, and it influences water infiltration. So uh, on, on, on the bottom here, this is soil organic carbon. And those of you paying real close attention, remember I said organic carbon makes up about half of soil organic matter? These are really high soil organic matter soils, right? 10%, so not what we would typically see, but this part of the world where they did this, the point is, is that the relationship will hold for your soils as well. It will be similar. Over here, we have infiltration rate. So as soil carbon increases, infiltration rate increases. Good thing, right? As soil organic carbon increases, this is the size and the water stability of aggregates. Remember the slake test? As, as aggregate stability increases, it's in relation to organic carbon levels. The point being, there's, there's this relationship between organic carbon, the stability of aggregates, and infiltration of water. We know that because we've seen the famous slake test. So what is that, but what does that have to do with biology? But what it has to do with biology is that biology is absolutely critical for larger aggregates to form. The small aggregates down here, the things that we can't see, these are microscopic, we move out in greater size here, here's the macro aggregate, the thing that's, that's you know, a couple millimeters in size that we can hold in our fingers and see that looks like the cottage cheese. This is physical and chemical. But when we get here, it's biological. So unless we have organisms active and functioning in our soil, we're not gonna get this aggregation. We're not gonna get the pore space, we're not gonna get the benefits of water infiltration and movement. So again, microbes absolutely critical to this. So microbes contribute to improved nutrient cycling, and I just want to touch on one specific area. We're going to talk about mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizae literally means fungus root. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship that fungi, some fungi, create with plant roots. More than 80% of our plants form these associations if we allow them to, if we manage in such a way that they can. We increase nutrient uptake as a result of this. There's some uh, evidence that it improves plant competitiveness and resistance to disease uh, when they're allowed to form these mycorrhizae associations. Aids in establishment, there's a lot. Mycorrhizae, they actually will dip pine tree seedlings in solutions of mycorrhizae fungi spores before they plant them because they're really effective in degraded soils and they improve drought tolerance of plants. And here's a, here's a picture of pine seedlings, and you can see the mycorrhizae association. And they, they, they literally do form this pipeline. They, they increase the surface area, the volume of soil that's explored by the plant. Nutrients and water move to the plant. We know that the hyphae of the, of the mycorrhizae will connect. There will be communication between them somehow. And then they improve soil aggregation. They form glues, and just by their physical presence, they will, they will improve aggregation and soil. So 
What happens in the symbiosis? Here is the mycorrhizae, here's the soil, here's the plant root. So the plant, it's symbiosis, there's mutual benefit, so it's costing the plant something to have this association. The plant gives the, the fungus carbon, in return the plant derives nutrients from the soil, derives water from the soil. Mycorrhizae fungi in, in agricultural systems are affected by fertilization. In this particular work, they, they, applied, uh, they applied nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer, measured mycorrhizae associations before and after, and the nitrogen fertilizer reduced mycorrhizae associations with corn 15%, the nitrogen reduced associations 15%, and, and the phosphorus fertilizer reduced associations 32%. Why is that? Well, because it's again, it's costing the plant something to form these associations. And the plant would rather, if we could speak of plants rathering, plants would rather get those nutrients through the roots directly without having to give up some of its carbon, some of its energy that it's worked hard for through photosynthesis that it wants to use for growth and development to the fungus. Same thing happens with rhizobium, with nitrogen fixation. If there's adequate soil nitrogen, nodulation and nitrogen fixation by rhizobium on legume roots will be decreased. Why? Because it costs the plant something. They've got to give up carbon to the bacteria to get that benefit. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you mulling over ways you can improve the health of your own no-tilled soils, you'll be sure to pick up some helpful tips and information at the upcoming 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. Coming up January 8th through the 11th, 2019 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Veteran innovative no-tillers Dave Brandt, Trey Hill, and Rick Clark will share their secrets for no-tilling green and utilizing cover crops to manage nutrients and save input costs. And Tennessee conservation educator and former Raydale Institute Research Director Paul Reed Hepperly will reveal in-depth information on the role earthworms play in nutrient cycling and building better no-tilled soils. Register online today for just $339 and register additional farm family members for just $312. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com. Let's get back to our podcast now as Dennis Chessman explains why it's important for no-tillers to understand the term microbiome and how it influences crop production and protection from threatening pathogens and diseases. He'll also review the practices that feed and protect the soil and the beneficial soil community. This is the part that really intrigues me the most, is very active area of research where people are looking at what's going on in the soil related to the microbial community and the interaction with plants and how that might be benefiting plants. We know that there are pathogens in soil. Uh, a lot of crop fungal pathogens primarily are soil residents, but we're starting to appreciate more and more the benefits of soil. So what I want to look at is that one particular area, the area that we call the rhizosphere. So it's, it's that part of the soil that's really close to plant roots. 
within a couple millimeters of a plant root. And so it's influenced greatly by the presence of that plant root, and the plant root is influenced by the soil within that couple millimeters. Roots exude carbon. Uh, some of the carbon that they fix through photosynthesis is leaking out. Roots are leaky. And they share that carbon that they gain through photosynthesis with organisms to gain some benefit. And again, we call that symbiosis. As much as 20% of the carbon in some situations fixed by a plant in photosynthesis is given up. So one-fifth of the hard-earned carbon cash that that plant has created through photosynthesis, they're willing to give up. Why is that? Well, there's no free lunch, right? They're, they're going to get something in return. So what do they get in return? There's interesting, when you look at the difference between the rhizosphere and the bulk soil, so you move out of that few millimeters close to the root and the bulk soil, what these guys found, and this is in corn, is that the rhizosphere soil, and they looked at just certain groups of, these are groups of bacteria, different large groups, bigger than genera, and they found that invariably populations were, were higher and more diverse in the rhizosphere, much higher and more diverse in the rhizosphere. Again, having to do primarily because carbon is coming out, carbon, that food source that bacteria need is coming out of the roots. But they did find that, that what happens is it, they, they, used, they used the term that I like for the bulk soil as, the, as the, the microbe seed bank. So in other words, that away from the, the plant roots, there's, there are these incredibly diverse tens of thousands of species of bacteria. And then when plant roots are present, certain plants, and they exude certain carbon compounds, they attract those certain bacteria from the bulk soil to the rhizosphere. Communication sounds like, right? It's pretty fascinating. So here's, here's a lot going on on this slide. But what I want you to see here is, is that there are essentially two influences to this rhizosphere community. Because I think not only are the microbes the drivers of the system, but what's happening in the rhizosphere is really driving soil health systems and some of the benefits that we're seeing uh, being reported uh, by folks that have been in these systems for a while. So we have the biotic factors up in the left-hand corner, and those would be things like the species of the plant, and, and what we're finding now also the variety of the plant makes a difference as far as the rhizosphere biological community. Plant health, animals, is that, is that plant being grazed or not? Influences, responses in the plant, we know that. And then human activities, that's where we came, come in. Well, how are we managing those plants? And then you have the eight biotic factors, like uh, where you are in the world, things you can't help, your soil type, your climate, uh, but also things that you can help. How are you managing nutrients and, and pesticides? Nutrient inputs and pesticide inputs affect uh, outcomes in the, in the rhizosphere. And then over on the other side, we have the interactions between the rhizosphere organisms and the plant. And we get all of these benefits. We, we're finding that there's movement from the bulk soil out here to the rhizosphere based upon the health of the crop, the species of the crop, the variety of the crop, the health of the soil, uh, the, the, the vitality of this bulk soil community. And then we get some of these benefits that we're starting to identify. Things like biocontrol of pathogens, availability of micronutrients, enhancement and stress tolerance to heat and water stress. So plants modify the soil community. 
this is some data that show that. And I don't, I don't know if I want to spin. I'm, I'm running out of time. But one of the words you need to start being familiar with is soil microbiome. Uh, the microbiome is the identification of all of the organisms, the genetic information of all the organisms that make up the soil. And that's kind of where we're going. We're going to hone in on how the microbiome influences crop production. But what they did here is, is take all in wheat, which is a fungal disease. After years of continuous wheat, the disease was less prevalent. Now, this is not an encouragement to do continuous wheat, but what it does illustrate is that the wheat changed the soil community, and it created a resistant soil to the take-all fungal pathogens. And, and if we were going to look at it diagrammatically, this is how we might explain that. So we have over here, we have pathogens attacking the plant. The plant signals, hormonally the plant signals, and it triggers a response in the plant roots to, to microbial communities, bacterial communities. What those microbial bacterial communities then will do is, is they will create what's referred to as the induced resistance in the plant. So they will change chemical signals in the plant to induce resistance to that pathogen. This is being demonstrated both below ground and above ground uh, diseases, and it's also being demonstrated in above ground insect attacks on plants. Plants are responding biologically to suppress those diseases. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So here, here's, these are, this is just, uh, this illustrates that very thing. Rhizoctonia, which is a fungal disease, damping off common in a lot of crops. What they did is they had a, a conducive soil the red line, that's the soil where the, where the disease is effective. And here's a suppressive soil. We've known about suppressive soils for 100 years. But what they did is they heated this, this suppressive soil, really hot, killed everything in it, and they turned it into this line right here. What does that indicate? The suppressiveness was coming from something living in the soil. So there, was, there were organisms in the soil, microorganisms in the soil, that were suppressing the fungal pathogen that caused damping off, in this case, of beets. Healthy soils are important. Functioning soils are important. So in closing, how do, how do we do that? We manage by reducing the amount of disturbance of our soils, by, by diversifying our systems, by keeping soils covered, and by keeping living roots in the ground. And in that, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're protecting soil aggregates, we're protecting those spaces, we're protecting the places where the biological community lives, and then we're providing the carbon that feeds and fuels our system. So this is the benefits that we get. We maintain stable aggregates when we minimize disturbance and maximize cover. We reduce erosion, buffer temperatures, reduce evaporation, and maintain soil organic matter. Most of these will benefit the soil community. Most of these will benefit microbes and fungi. And then the other half of that circle, the feeding and fueling, breaking disease and pest cycles. We stimulate below ground diversity, increase soil organic matter, nutrient cycling, enhance plant growth. And again, all these, these benefits that are, that are undoubtedly wrapped up in plant resistance to, to stresses, disease, um, nutrient, and so, practices that feed and protect, these are the things that we know, things that we're doing or that we should be doing. We're reducing disturbance and tillage. Uh, we're controlling traffic is becoming a popular 
thing to reduce disturbance, minimize the areas of disturbance. Nutrient management and integrated pest management are important. We are applying nutrients and pesticides very judiciously and only when necessary, right? So cover cropping, cover cropping, mulching, covering the soil, reducing tillage, planting, retaining residue. How do we maximize diversity? Cover cropping again. Cover cropping is, and you know this, is, is, is a very easy way to get a lot of benefit for our soils. And we control grazing, we rotate crops, we put legumes in, and then how do we maximize continuous living roots? Crop rotation, again, cover cropping was in a fascinating program uh, uh, just before this about companion cropping and intercropping, concepts very common in the developing world, not very common in North America lately, but uh, maybe so in the future. We'd like to sincerely thank Dennis Chessman, team leader for the NRCS Soil Health Division in Lexington, Kentucky, for reinforcing how a healthy soil ecosystem contributes to important soil functions and how management practices that minimize direct disturbance of soil communities and contribute to building soil organic carbon can help no-tillers farm more profitably. For those listeners who'd like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit no-tillfarmer.com podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Calmer Corn Heads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our no-till farmer Facebook page. For Dennis Chessman and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening.